this festive season, make sure you stock up on Ring devices, which range from video doorbells to alarm and cameras. These easy-to-install smart home security products will give you peace of mind while you're away. As you can see, hear and talk to visitors from anywhere. Ring's products are available at Take-A-Lot, Builders Warehouse, Incredible Connection, Vodacom and Leroy Merlin. Because with Ring, you're always home. The young woman smiles as her phone pings. She reads the message and replies almost instantly. Yes, she is interested. The possibilities bloom inside her. Excitement, a bright future. Finally, she's caught a break. But the man on the other end of the messages is not who she thinks he is. And she's about to walk into a trap. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 136, The Serial Crimes of Tokozani Gianni. Now it's time for my tip about the latest series to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And on Saturday, the 2nd of December, you won't want to miss the exclusive documentary, Jackie Moulton, A Life in Crime, at 8pm. I also have some special bonus content for you with this week's episode, an interview with Jackie Moulton herself, which you can hear at the end of the episode. So be sure to keep listening. A retired detective chief inspector, Jackie Moulton was one of the first women ever to join London's notorious flying squad and broke the glass ceiling as a Scotland Yard detective. Her real-life experiences would eventually become the inspiration for Jane Tennyson, the character played by Helen Mirren in the TV drama Prime Suspect. Now for the first time, Jackie tells her remarkable story in her own words in the documentary Jackie Moulton, A Life in Crime on CBS Justice on DSTV Channel 170 and Starsat 222. A huge thank you to Jackie for chatting to me about her life and work and to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming – and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, 
signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Eric Bo Nielsen, Michael Loftus, Mac K, Jana van Groen, Crystal, and the Patreon member with the best middle name I've ever seen, Darisha Karishma, TCSA's biggest fan, Pele. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Serial rape cases are important to cover because we need to know how often the same offender is committing multiple rapes before getting caught. But also because they're using ever-changing modus operandi to lure their victims. These episodes are also very different from my usual ones because I can't focus on the victim as much as I would like to due to their right to anonymity. Unless rape survivors choose to go public about their experiences, their identities are protected by law. And that is absolutely the way it should be. But it does mean I end up focusing a lot more on the offenders than the victims in these episodes, which is not ideal. I think that these cases can still be beneficial to survivors and others, though, because they help to reveal the workings of the minds that commit serial rape. And as this episode will show, serial rapists are not really that different from serial murderers in how they operate, and they should definitely be treated as such. In researching this case, I used the judgment from this case, as well as several media articles. So let's get into episode 136, The Serial Crimes of Tokozani Gianni. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Tokozani Gianni was born on the 10th of October 1997. His parents were not married when he was born and he had no relationship with his father, who went on to die when Tokozani was very young. Tokozani grew up with his mother and siblings in Mpumalanga and left school after completing grade 10. He told his mother at the time that he wanted to start working so he could contribute to the household, but that is not what happened. Instead, Tokozani stayed at home, and although he picked up a few peace jobs here and there, his family said he never really made much of an effort to find permanent employment. Whatever money he did earn, and what he could borrow from his mother and siblings, he spent on data for his phone. And it was on this phone 
that Togozani went about creating a double life, which more closely resembled the one he desired. Social media can be a powerful platform for social change. It can get people behind the right causes, and sometimes it can make lonely people feel like they have some sense of community. On the other hand, it's also a very dangerous world, because essentially you are creating a persona of yourself that is not entirely accurate to what the real world you is like. And that's true no matter how honest you are on your socials. All the things that make up you are sometimes not even evident to you. So there's no way you can reproduce every element of that on Facebook or Instagram. And sometimes there are people who who very purposefully create an alternate identity for themselves on these platforms. Someone they perhaps wish they could be. And as young Tokozani got more and more sucked into this online world, he created an alter ego who could act in the digital space on his behalf. Tokozani's alter ego, his fake Facebook profile, essentially was almost always based around the same details. He was a man working in the entertainment industry, He often used a real local television actor's name and photograph. The man's name is Ney Maps. Initially, Tokozani just relied on his alter ego's fake fame to chat to girls. Many young women were flattered when a profile they thought belonged to a celebrity sent them a friend request. At first, Tokozani seemed to get more than enough thrill from just pretending to be a celebrity and texting back and forth with the young woman. He would get some to move over to WhatsApp, but many he kept on Facebook Messenger. Then, in October 2019, Tokozani was no longer sated by just messaging, and his game got far more dangerous. This is one of the ways in which we can see that serial rapists are so similar in nature to serial murderers. This evolution and change in the fantasy is exactly what we see with serial murderers, when, from scene to scene, small details will change. Nothing is ever absolutely identical as they progressively try to tweak their crimes to provide more and more of an adrenaline rush and bring them closer to their ideal fantasy. For a long time, just texting was enough. But then Tokozani decided he wanted to meet up with some of these women. It's very likely that already at this point, he had rape on his mind. But it's also very possible that he didn't initially frame it like that. Rapists are very good at explaining away their crimes and framing them in such a way that in their mind, they might even be able to convince themselves their victims were not entirely unwilling. One part of Tokozani was emboldened by the attention he was getting, and that likely made him feel really good. But of course, there was the other, more reasonable part, perhaps, that knew that these girls were not actually interacting with him that way. 
they were interacting with the fake persona he'd created. And that is who they would expect to arrive if he set up a meeting. Many of the girls were hesitant to meet up with Tokozani, and rightly so, but like so many serial offenders in South Africa, he soon pulled out the card he knew many couldn't resist. Employment. He himself was unemployed, and many of the girls he was talking with were too, and he was not just offering them any job. He, of course, was in the entertainment industry, so these were the types of jobs many of these girls dreamed about. Exciting work on film sets and at dazzling events. The lure was incredible. And sadly, as we have seen with many other serial offender victims, the jobs didn't even need to be that dazzling. Such a large portion of South Africans are unemployed and living under the poverty line that the possibility of any employment, doing almost anything, would get their attention and be very difficult to turn away. And that is exactly what Tokozani banked on. Again, without him being honest about it, it's difficult to know what his true intentions were when he arranged to meet his first victim in Dalmas in October 2019. But whatever those intentions were, he quickly turned to violence. A modus operandi would develop that day, which he would sickeningly perfect in the months to come, until he was so good at what he did that only a major world event would stop him. Tokazani's first known crime, which occurred in Dalmas in that month, was almost his last, and he was actually arrested soon after when his victim went to police and they traced him. But something went horribly wrong with this investigation, and the case was withdrawn, and Tokozani was released. He would later say that he'd gone straight home, packed a bag, kissed his mother goodbye, and left for Boxburg that same day. He arrived in Angelo Township in Boxburg in late October 2019, found a place to stay, and soon was back to curating his online relationships. It would not take long for him to lure his next victim. From November 2019, Tokozani Gianni committed at minimum two rapes and robberies per month. All of the women were lured to Angelo Township and the surrounds after meeting Tokozani on Facebook under his alter ego profile. As is not uncommon after a sexual predator meets the law in one of his early offences, he tends to escalate quickly thereafter. He'll find ways to ensure his victims are silenced. Often that means murder, but Tokozani resorted to intensely instilling fear and violence so that his victims would perhaps be too afraid to report. What always remained the same about his crimes was that he would arrange the meetings on Facebook, get the women to come to him, have them meet him in the least populated place in the area, and then tell them he was going to take them to the offices of the entertainment businesses he'd referred to. 
He, of course, knew that they would instantly know on sites that he was not the man in the Facebook profile, so he assured them that he would have a friend meet them and accompany them to his offices. So when the women were met by a man, Togazani, who didn't look like the profile, they were not alarmed, and as most of them were not from Boxburg, they also didn't know that there were no offices or businesses beyond the dense bush area he led them into. This method is very much like what Moses Sotole would do. While this part of Tokozani's MO remained the same each time, the type of violence he used changed. With some of his victims, he used weapons like knives. With others, he used his fists and beat them into submission. He forced many of the victims to perform oral sex on him before raping them vaginally as well. Both acts are considered rape under South African law. There was soon a disturbing escalation in his violence, which pointed to the possibility of him leaning toward murder at some point when he began to choke his victims. He also introduced other elements of torture into his crimes, poking one woman with shards of broken glass and seemingly becoming more excited when she screamed in pain. Almost all the victims believed that they were going to be killed. Many of the victims who were choked and blacked out thought that they were dying at that moment. Tokozani kept the women prisoner in the field for longer and longer on each occasion, seemingly wanting to prolong the episode as much as possible. All of the victims were robbed of their belongings and threatened with death if they reported the rape. Tokozani told some that he'd hacked their phones with his messages and had all of their personal information, claiming to know where they lived and that he would come to their houses if they went to police. Despite the intense fear that these young women experienced and how absolutely terrified they must have been, many of them did immediately report their rapes to police. Tokozani had been smart enough to use a condom with most of his victims, so there was not much DNA to be had. All of these rapes did happen in the same area, though, so they would have been reported to the same police station. And due to the lack of DNA, when the common theme of being lured on Facebook started to crop up, police soon started to wonder if they had a serial offender. And maybe... The way to catch him was the same way he lured his victims. Social media. Initially, only three of the rapes were grouped together as part of a series. Many of the victims were ashamed that they'd willingly gone to Boxburg to meet up with the man who ended up being a rapist, so some didn't initially share that information with police. Using the same type of geographical profiling that's used to figure out where serial murderers may likely live or work, detectives determined an area in which they believed the serial rapist may live. They then began to work with the community in that area. Although the offender was not drawing his victims from the area, but rather luring them from elsewhere, it still may not be long until he changed his M.O. and started to target locals, 
So it was imperative that everyone in the community be aware. An identicate had been put together, and the three victims they'd managed to conclusively link had offered up their social media profiles for the SAPS technicians to use to try and track the offender through the messages exchanged. Unfortunately, Meta, who owns Facebook, is not always great with assisting countries outside of the United States with information on their users, even if they are suspected of crimes. So although tracking an IP address would have been really helpful, that was a long-term goal. And more immediately, they could use other technology to analyze the language and content of the messages to try and identify the perpetrator. Police also put word out to their informant community, who would often get more information from local people than the police could, simply because very often the police are not trusted. As is the case with most serial offenders, the increased police attention made no difference to Tokozani's crimes. He continued to lure young women and committed rapes and robberies right up until March 2020. I don't feel like I need to tell anyone what happened in South Africa in March 2020, but if you do need a memory jog for some reason, it was when South Africa went into lockdown for the COVID pandemic. The period that would follow would have many terrible effects for many people, and much of that still continues until today, with so many having lost so much. But there were some good things that happened. And one of those things was that with everyone being forced to stay at home and movement being restricted and monitored, that applied to criminals too. People who moved at night or were very much phantoms in their communities were suddenly forced to emerge when everyone else did, and also to stay in one place, which was very helpful to police in carrying out arrest warrants. Captain Manaka from the Family Violence, Child Protection and Sexual Offences Unit had been in charge of investigating the three rape cases that had been linked at that point. And after lockdown started, his work in spreading information to informants in the community paid off, and he received a call that a young man who was relatively new to the community closely fitted the description of the perpetrator. Soon, Tokozani Gianni opened his door to Captain Manake and was taken in for questioning. During this period of lockdown, 97 sex offenders were arrested in this area and the surrounds. Three of them were major serial offenders. Although Tokozani initially denied having raped anyone, he allowed police to access his phone and check his Facebook. I don't know if he thought they wouldn't know about or know how to find the fake profiles he'd set up, but they did so almost immediately. And within a few minutes, Gianni had given them more than enough evidence to arrest him on the three rape charges. Tokozani was likely surprised when he heard he was being charged with three rapes because he knew very well he'd committed far more than that. But the police didn't know that for sure yet. With him in custody for those three, though, and his bail denied, 
the SAPS got to work to start finding any other cases he might be responsible for. This was done by cross-referencing all of his phone activity, including WhatsApp and social media profiles, and searching local cases of rape that had been reported. The plea was also put out for any victims of rape who hadn't reported their crimes against them to come forward. Police knew very well that they had a very dangerous young man on their hands, and they wanted to ensure that they could put him away for as long as possible. Linking cases without DNA would mean that the investigative psychology unit would need to conduct a linkage analysis to present in court and show the judge that the same offender had committed all of the cases presented, and then it would be the prosecutor's job to show that that offender was indeed Tokozani Gianni. The team was eventually able to identify 10 different victims who, between them, accounted for 17 counts of rape. Some of the victims were raped more than once and in different ways. And so Gianni's charge sheet grew by the time his trial started to 17 counts of rape, 10 counts of robbery with aggravating circumstances, two counts of kidnapping, assault with intent to do grievous bodily harm, and three counts of fraud. Captain Elmarie Myberg would play an integral role for the prosecution in Tokozani Gianni's trial. As one of the very early members of the SAPS's investigative psychology unit, Elmarie is highly experienced in the investigation of serial offenders. She is only one of four qualified criminologists currently in the employ of the SAPS and the only qualified profiler. Her linkage analysis would be vital in connecting all 10 cases to one another, taking into account all the similarities in modus operandi and other circumstances of the crimes. She presented this to the court, and the defence had very few questions to ask in cross-examination, as her evidence was so thorough and pretty much indisputable. She would also play a role in the sentencing stage of this trial after Togozani Gianni was found guilty of all the charges he faced. And he was. In mitigation, Togozani Gianni testified in his own defence. He indicated that he was remorseful for his crimes and that his behaviour had been impacted by his upbringing without a father. A social worker had compiled a report about Togozani's background that didn't really find anything compelling enough to suggest to the court that any sentence other than imprisonment would fit the crimes. Two of the most important things to be taken into account when sentencing is the welfare of the victims and the good of society, and neither of those would be benefited by having Tokozani Gianni anywhere other than behind bars. Captain Elmarie Myberg presented a pre-sentencing report regarding Gianni's prospects of rehabilitation, which in her learned opinion were extremely low, as is the case with most sexual offenders of this nature. In passing down sentence, the judge pointed out the absolute viciousness of Gianni's crimes and how his victims would have to live with the trauma for the rest of their lives – 
He also said that with South Africa's rape statistics being so out of hand, it was vital the court send a message to offenders that rape will not be tolerated and will be strongly punished. With that, he handed down eight life sentences plus 223 years for the other charges against him. We're starting to see more and more prolific serial rape offenders being arrested, and this has a lot to do with our DNA systems getting better, which is a hopeful sign for the future. Gianni's Monica became the Facebook rapist, but as we well know, he's just one of quite a number of offenders who've been given that Monica, which I think speaks to the danger that exists on these platforms. For the most part, rape will be committed by someone the victim knows. But clearly, for offenders like Gianni, social media has made getting to know, and I put air quotes around that, prospective victims much easier. We often talk about how difficult it is to know who is a dangerous offender and who is not, because so often people like Gianni wear a proverbial mask when they move through the world. They are the son, the brother, the friend, the man next door. And with social media, that mask is so much easier to wear. There in that digital world of good and bad, we all kind of wear masks, even when we don't intend to. And those who head on there with nefarious intentions are more than happy to embrace the cloak of anonymity and become someone else for a little while until they're ready to show you who they really are. To all of the unnamed survivors, may your future be bright and never again darkened by the shadow of this man. You are strong. You have put him where he belongs. And now you can take back your lives. Don't let him steal another second. And now I've got that bonus content I mentioned to you at the top of the episode. I was incredibly privileged to be able to interview Jackie Moulton recently as one of the first women to ever join London's Notorious Flying Squad and one of the youngest detective inspectors ever at 25 years old. Jackie retired from the service with honour and now spends her days consulting to TV crime shows and working with offenders with substance use disorders in prisons across the UK. She is one of those pioneering women that I seriously look up to. And I think I grinned like a weirdo for the entire interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with Jackie Moulton. You've said that asking why after a crime is committed has led you to the real truth of many situations in your career. I thought that was quite interesting because as a police officer, you wouldn't necessarily need to know why to do your job. You just need to know who and how. Are you able to share some ways that you think that curiosity about the roots of a crime has helped you in your career? 
So the police said to me, they're not interested in the whys and the wherefores of you just said that. And that did they or didn't they? And it was about evidence. But everything is in context, I think. And I think the context is important. And when I kind of was more experienced, I could often put the context in a what we would call a report to the CPS or report to the solicitor's department, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't make any difference what they've done at all. But I think it's all about, not in every circumstances, you can't say to an armed robber, why did you do it? That's a bit pointless. <laughs> but where there were more, where there were crimes whereby, I remember this guy, who uh, was arrested for taking a bank manager hostage in Oxford Street, uh, Oxford Street, centre of London, in the West End. And he'd taken him hostage with a... He was an engineer, and he he made this hand grenade that looked really, really... Well, it looked real. It didn't look an imitation. And the bank manager kind of feigned illness, and as he kind of feigned illness, he bent down and he pressed the emergency button and the man was arrested so then he said what why was the reason and he'd been given a overdraft by this particular bank and the bank had just for his business and the bank for some reason had just withdrawn it and it absolutely ruined him and he was so frustrated that in his outrage which is not a clever thing to do at all (laughs) that he took the bank, a bank manager hostage in protest type of thing. And I think sometimes you have to put that in context as to the reasons why. Because if you didn't, you know, then there's no story and there's no story for the judge. And I did say to the judge, I didn't think this man had ever re-offended. And, he, you know, he hasn't, as far as I know, he's re-offended. So I think sometimes, I remember the judge saying that it was gratifying, he said, to hear a police officer say, talk about the narrative, the story. And so I just sometimes think where it's appropriate that you should ask the whys and the wherefores. And also the whys and the wherefores, as a society, helps us understand other people, stand in their shoes for a little bit, etc. So I'm in a prison now and I listen to the whys and the wherefores. Sorry about that. The whys and the wherefores all the time. And, you know, many of them adverse childhood experiences. So... It was my professional curiosity. The other thing that's really important is that if you engage in them in a way that is mutual, then they will be willing to talk to you and often reveal stuff. So just to clarify, when Jackie says, I'm in prison now, she means working in a prison, not incarcerated in one. Back to the interview. I found it interesting that you hadn't excelled at school the same way as your siblings. But once you joined the police service and found something you were passionate about, you really started to show your true potential. I've seen that with many other successful professionals too. Do you think that experience made you see people you encountered in law enforcement differently? Maybe as though if they'd only found their purpose, their potential may not have been misused in criminality. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was a bit of a fighter for the underdog. <laughs> and and I think, you know, we had in this country an exam called 11 plus, which you, you're, you're destined, your life is destined at age 11, which way you will go, you pass or you'll fail. I mean, I did further education later on and I rectified it. But the point about it all is at that time, there is a kind of, there's a judgment value. And uh, 
And everybody has a story. All of us have a story. Every one of us has a narrative to our lives. And I think that's really important. So, yeah, it did. Because you can you can identify and you could have some form of understanding and a bit of empathy. Empathy is huge, I think. It's really, really huge. And I found it important to be... I don't mean I'm a soft touch because I wasn't a soft touch. I was a tough cookie, but you know, I just the empathy to me is I, I'm naturally empathic, so it, it was just to be, enable often to be empathic for them to open up and talk to you, and and you would get honestly, you would get confessions that way. You'd get confessions to the crime by being empathic. And that's something we discuss in the podcast quite a bit is understanding offender behavior, not to excuse it, but to understand so that we can try and help others. Yeah. So the, if you listen to adverse childhood experiences that are not dealt with as youngsters, then what basically happens is they grow up with their, what you call an arrested development. And now they're in a, a male body and female you know, but both sexes, of course, and they're still acting, reacting as that child, you know, which is in the sense of their emotions, their behaviours are childlike in many, many ways because it's we, nobody's dealt with those issues. So that's what we do in prison is to deal with those issues and those are the things that I really enjoy mostly, m- most of it, I mean, all of it, the, talking to them and getting them to kind of, you know, own up about the childhood. And of course, they never see any of that themselves, never see any of it. So much of your early life and career was spent trying to simultaneously be yourself while also trying to belong. And I found it so interesting how when you admitted your alcohol addiction and contacted the guy from AA, you said to him, I think I'm one of you. Do you think you found a sense of community within people in Alcoholics Anonymous that you maybe struggle to find elsewhere? Well, what you do is you find a sense of community because it's about understanding another person, that everybody, you know, as I said many times, nobody has an ambition to be an alcoholic because it's mental torture. Absolutely not. And and I've been there 30 years. I've heard thousands of stories and and, and things, but it is about identification with what the alcohol did for the individual, which feels all of them say that they were kind of riddled by fear, insecurity, vulnerability. Everyone says that, including men, and that they felt this hole in the soul. So, what is common denominator was the feeling of the hole in the soul. And then, when the alcohol went down the throat, it kind of, you know, it joined the dots. And it was a really nice feeling that it was just one of comfort. And then, of course, what, again, what alcoholics, including myself, were trying to anchor myself externally. When you try and anchor yourself with a sense of belonging externally, then you do lose yourself because you have to anchor yourself internally. And the the recovery program teaches you, and through your own experience and through the work that you do on yourself, you know, why was I shameful? Why did I feel like this? What's my part in it, etc. And of course, the learned behaviors of your thinking. So we think and it becomes like a habit of your thought processes and stuff. So in recovery, you have to look at the thought processes, start to change those thought processes, you know, and and really start to 
work on yourself in order to validate yourself. So the anchoring, again, sense of belonging, is not external. It has to be internal. Um, and then I can, of course, have my friends externally and all of that type of thing. But people, what people thought of me, my validation, external validation, cannot come from, come externally. I have to have my own sense of self. And uh, for many, many addicts, they lose that. They have lost the sense of self. And along the way, for whatever reasons, you know, it, it's a, a you get peace and you just, it, it, it's peace with yourself. You know, because and also the other thing is that you live your life in a way within your own moral compass and your own integrity and your own authentic self. So, you know, I mean, we're not saints. Of course, we're not saints. And it would be ridiculous to suggest that. But for the majority of your kind of life, the way that you feel about yourself, you know, is good. And if you snap at somebody or I don't know, whatever it might be, you, or you have a thought about somebody and you think, well, where does that thought come from? And it's normally would come from something within yourself. So you can manage your own thoughts on a daily basis, have a reflective, you know, process. And it just feels so good to live your life like that, other, 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 apart from worrying, you know, if you're worried about what other people thought of you all the time which I did, by the way, I did, against myself, you know. And then if the boss wanted to see me, tell me on a Friday, see you Monday, I'd think, oh, we can. Well, what does he want to see me do? You know, it would all be negative and stuff like that. And I know that in my life today, most of the time, not all of the time, you know, I live within my own integrity. And if I breach that, then I will apologise, you know, to say I will kind of look at it. And if... I upset you, for example, then I'd say I'm really sorry about that. I own it and that's it. So, so just a it's kind of oh, I don't know. It's just a nice, nice way to live your life. Mm. And you don't have, you know, like if, if you're with somebody and they're quite negative about other people and moaning and groaning, it's quite it becomes so toxic. And you know what? I can't be in that company for long. I just can't. And you kind of go, oh, I don't want to live my life like that. I want to live my life how my dog, what my, what my dog thinks I am. And my dog loves me unconditionally. And that's how I want to be with my friends and stuff. How much has admitting and working through your own substance use issues helped you to better understand the offenders you've worked with, if at all? Oh, no, I only work with offenders with substance issues. So, yeah, the identification is there all, all the time. i just give you a little example. There's a guy I've been working with for, well, there's two. There's one that's just been released. He called me the other day, and I knew he was being released, although he didn't know when. And he, he was in for domestic violence. And he, he'd been convicted twice and had prison sentences for domestic violence on partners, et cetera, et cetera. But he believes he's a nice guy. He believes, you know, that's not me. That's not really who I am. And I said, well, you know, and I'm quite tough with him. You're sitting in prison because you've abused women. You know, let's kind of look at that. And looked at his control issues and stuff like that. And I really honed in on him. And he didn't like it. He didn't like it because he couldn't believe he was that person. And it, and again, it's the rationale, isn't it? You know, I'm not that kind of person. His whole behaviour in all of his life was controlled, even his work. So anyway, it's a very long story short. 
he came to me and said, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I've got it. I can see with clarity, you know, my part in it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's another one I mentor is a double life. He killed two people in a 10-day binge. Uh, uh, my other one, he didn't kill anyone. He assaulted his partners. But this other one, he killed two people in a 10-day binge of, of addiction. So he served 32 years in prison. And then he'd been released about two or three times. He kept picking up a drink, relapsed, and he'd get recall. So we had to look at these issues, et cetera, et cetera. And I've been with him now for, oh, I don't know, got to be five or six years. And he's just been just been released into the community. But I know he won't pick up a drink. I know that he, well, I don't know, but I'm, I don't think he will. I don't think he will. Because we've looked at those issues as to why he would pick up a drink. And that often in relationships, there is often, in his case, he was a rescuer. And then there's another thing in addiction. So excuse me saying it, but addicts will have what they call a fuck it button. And, you know, they might get into some form of, I don't know, a little row or something at home with their partner. And then, you know, they get to a point and go, fuck it, go down the pub and, you know. Yeah. It's it, it's a game for everyone. And then, of course, it gets recalled. So you've got to manage and learn to manage that fuck it button. It's vital to identify that because when you do, then you can be aware when you start to get to that point and choose something else. Exactly, because it's a habit. You see, the other thing is also what's quite interesting about habits, when you ask people who are non-alcoholics or addicts where they don't have much sympathy for the addicts and alcoholics, you say to them, right, on New Year's Eve, when you make your New Year resolution, resolution, how long does it last? And, of course, they go, oh, well, three weeks, three days, three months, and that's about it because it's a habit. It's an absolute habit. And you have to change the neural pathways in your brain, and that takes work, etc. So those that you just kind of think, well, hold the mirror up to yourself because, you know, addiction is a habit of the solution to the problems that they're facing because they're not working it through, they're not working themselves through, and that's when they press the fuck it button. And at the point, they say, actually, we've got to go beyond that, work that through, let's go beyond that. What else can you do, etc.? But, you know, these resolution, they go, oh, well, yeah, you know, within three months, it's raining outside, the football's on the TV, and they go, oh, fuck it, I'm not going to go gonna go to the gym. <laughs> it's the same process. Tell me about your transition after retiring to working in television as a script consultant. Those are two very different worlds. What was that like for you? Uh, well, I'd already had, obviously, a bit of experience with working with a scriptwriter because um, I'd helped Linda LaPlante with Prime Suspect, you know, some six, seven years earlier. Mm. So then I worked on Prime Suspect 1, 2, and 3, and then other people within the media asked if I could give advice to to them on programme. So I then told the Metropolitan Police that that's what I was doing and, and et cetera. So you have to inform them. So it, because of Prime Suspect, then... I got a bit of a name for myself and then people wanted the authenticity. So that's what happened. Now, after you leave the police, policing changes very, very quickly, you know, procedures, processes, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm out of it now and I'm not in it in the sense of understanding what's being changed. So 
I then transitioned, not intentionally, but it happened to come my way. Somebody asked me to get involved in a documentary. And then that has taken off massively in terms of documentary work, which I much prefer, to be perfectly honest. Because mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it was the first time that they'd had one cop, ex-cop, talking to other ex-cops about some very high-profile crimes that people had dealt with. So that was how it worked. And then that's kind of carrying on for me at the minute. So I'm very, very happy to do that because I'm very interested in the truth and the facts and, yeah, and also have the ability. Because because you do understand, because you've been an ex-cop, when you talk to other ex-cops, you have much more layers of depth and nuances. And they always said to me, it's much better talking to you because you get it as opposed to a non-police person. There's no doubt that you faced a tidal wave of discrimination during your time in the police service. And you've been described as almost a chameleon who needed to adjust to the environment to try and fit in. I wonder how much of you as a person was shaped by that forced fitting in. And do you think that you eventually managed to find your way back to who Jackie may have been without being a police officer? Or is it all ingrained in you? No, probably not. I think what happens is that all of those things that affect, affect well, let's let's take that question, peel it back a bit. Who knows what would have happened if I hadn't been a police officer, but everything that has happened to me because I was a police officer and because of other stuff has made me the person that I am. So I'm very grateful for the journey, however horrible it might have been on occasions throughout. So that's made me Jackie. The addiction has made me Jackie, the, all of that kind of stuff. So when you're, you know, nobody's born an addict, aren't they? And nobody's born, you know, you're not born an addict or you don't, you're not born feeling less than. <laughs> all these things that happen to you. And now when, when you said I was chameleon, there's a sense of, Wanting to belong and fitting in, that's absolutely right. But the, I think my difference there was that I i still spoke out, even though I wanted to belong. So there was the dichotomy and there was the incongruence. So that was the uncomfortable feeling. So I spoke out, but I wanted to belong. And the two don't go together. And that's how it, that's what happened. Or the discomfort, absolute discomfort. And if I was a chameleon and wanting to belong, then I've said nothing. But throughout my career, I've always spoken out about all sorts of things. Now, this is not so much a question as a statement, and I'm sure it didn't feel like it at the time. But I was thinking that there's probably no more validating statement for a woman than we don't know what to do with you. You've got to be doing something right when people say that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They didn't know what to do with it because the majority of the men in those days did not want an operational female in the mainstream because we had been in the, uh, you know, in the stream of police women hierarchy. Now we're opened up to the mainstream and then they didn't want, they didn't know what to do with me. So, you know, the thing is, he did me a favour. He did me a favour. So that was, that was good. You often used sex workers as informants and forged bonds with them. Do you feel like your gender assisted you in doing that? I can only think that these women would not have been nearly as comfortable with a male officer. 
absolutely, definitely that helped. And do you know what? I always remember some of those sex workers, as we call them now, but we called them prostitutes at the time. But if you had a missing girl, a young girl, 14, from the care system, let's say, they're often from, you know, do you understand about the care system? They've been put in care. Yeah, so, and they've gone run, missing from home. Or, sorry, missing from the care centre. I'd always go and speak to the girls. And I remember one girl lady saying to me, you know, come back in half an hour, Jackie, and I'll have her. But I'll, I'll have her here. And the reason for it was they're saying, I don't want this kid to end up like me. And there was lots and lots of poverty way back in the 70s. There was women with single mums. They had a pimp that was working them, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole setup was well where a woman did not have her own voice. And, and again, what really annoyed me at the time, it was, an, it was an act committed by two people, a man and a woman. The only legislation that was in play was under the Street Offences Act, which was against the women. So the women got nicked for loitering for the purpose or soliciting for the purpose of prostitution. And the men just nothing happened to them and it was always that kind of thing well hold on a minute there's two people here and if the men didn't drive around you see what I mean or the women weren't on the streets but it was very very one-sided and very judgmental and some of those women my heart went out to them because they lived in abject poverty you know oh it was just awful and the only way that they they could do something to get money for their kids or rent or anything was to work the streets and yeah I had a lot a lot of time for them I really did and I never judged them I never judged them so yeah I I, I, and in and in the process I used to kind of inadvertently give me lots of information but that wasn't the reason my reason was genuine absolutely genuine to yeah it was had a lot of time for them and that is my interview with Jackie Moulton I do hope you found as much value in that discussion as I did and don't forget to catch the exclusive documentary Jackie Moulton a life in crime on CBS Justice on the 2nd of December at 8 p.m. if you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content Please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial-A-Bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.